Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, covering the Postal Service. There's been a lot of places that we never thought we would end up this year, and one of them is having the U.S. Postal Service become a critical part of the election story. If you've been watching the Democratic Convention online this week, it's come up a lot, um, and it's become a sort of partisan issue. The coverage I've noticed this week takes on the tone of urgency and this sense that this is a new thing, that we've never been here before, that the Postal Service has been sort of untouchable, and then all of a sudden it's been politicized by Donald Trump. I'm thrilled to be joined today to figure out whether that's true by Richard John. Richard is a historian at Columbia who teaches the history of business, technology, communications, politics, and critical to this conversation, he's the author of a book called Spreading the News, The American Postal System from Franklin to Morris. Richard, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Let's talk about this question of whether what we're seeing today in this battle between the Democrats and the Republicans over the Postal Service is new. I, I know the answer to this, but talk us through the history of politics in the U.S. Postal Service. Well, the post office in the Constitution, 1792, it acquired civic mandate to link the government and the governed. 1792 to 1828, you had the emergence of a semi-autonomous uh, administrative cadre in the post office. So you did not have many uh, partisan hirings and firings. It was a, a, a blip when Jefferson took office, but the norm became quite well established that as long as you were doing your job, you'd hold your position. You would not be dismissed except for cause. That was the language of the day. Okay. Elected Andrew Jackson, 1828. His uh, surrogates, editors, before the election, were trying to build support for an outsider. He did not have a base in the federal government, not a cabinet officer, uh, not a, uh, a, a well-known public figure with a lot of support as a statesman. He was, of course, well-known as a military leader. He enlists a group of editors to spread the news about his candidacy. One of those editors, Duff Green, was quite explicit that the post office was corrupt, that the stables needed to be cleaned, that there's massive corruption that we have to arrest by dismissing office holders and appointing newcomers. And those newcomers, the implication very clear, would be Jackson supporters. Well, so, hold on. Just just before we go on on, on the yeah. personalities here, what was the post office used for that was different than what it's used for today? In the early republic, the primary use of the post office was to circulate newspapers, magazines. It was 95% of the weight of the mail, 15% of the revenue. So, so that it, would be, it, would be, it was the internet. It was, it was the Victorian internet was the post office. Yes, right. you communicated uh, beginning in the 1840s uh, with friends and neighbors or friends and uh, you know, distant uh, acquaintances, relatives. Before the 1840s, if you went to the post office and you, there was no 
home delivery, you would be there most likely to pick up a newspaper. Right. So it really became, I mean, it was an important part of keeping informed and it was in, it was important for politicians uh, as a tool to sort of get their message out. That's absolutely right. And congressmen could send an unlimited number of campaign documents through the mail at no cost. It's called huh. the franking privilege. Uh-huh. Uh, and that was pretty important. Post office, in effect, paid for elections. Was there a fairness doctrine idea that yeah. if, if they let one side do it, the other side had to be able to do it too? Well, the, the norm of impartiality was enshrined in the Post Office Act 1792. Every newspaper could go in the mail. Uh-huh. And by the way, editors could circulate an unlimited number of newspapers with each other, all at no cost. Right. But beginning with Andrew Jackson, the institution became politicized. It's about 90, 95% of all federal employees, massive turnover every four years, every new president would bring in an army of postmasters. And of course, there would be accusations that whatever party was not in power, their pamphlets were not being circulated rapidly enough. Uh-huh. Their pamphlets would just end up in a ditch. Uh, that kind of that kind of accusation was common in the press, especially the partisan press. But there was absolutely no partiality in law. You're supposed to be completely uh, fair to all sides. This is so interesting because for those of us who haven't been following this that closely, this this charge of Trump's that that the post office is somehow political just seemed to come out of nowhere. And it seemed to be like weird. But what you're saying based on the history is that it's actually it actually goes back decades and decades and decades and decades to to very, very early days at the post office. I wonder well, I wonder if he, he certainly, I, I'm not assuming he knew any of this history, but it, has there been a sort of vein through conservative thought and conservative media in particular that the post office is sort of, um, a, you know, that, that, that there's a sort of political manipulation possibility here? Not that I'm aware of in recent years. Uh, Charles Koch, Libertarians, Cato Institute, have been focused on the threat posed by the post office to kind of libertarian vision, kind of radical utopia. And is that just because it's a big government bureaucracy? Does that mean they don't exactly. like it? Right. Exactly. It's in the way. If, if we didn't have a post office, it would be harder to make an argument for Social Security. If we didn't have a post office, it would be harder to make an argument oh. for expanding public services. So that has been, as I've followed the story, the predominant uh, conservative critique. Now, this is a conservative critique um, I put in quotation marks because there are many conservatives who love the post office and say quite straightforwardly that why is a president who calls himself a conservative attacking one of the institutions that has made America great? And that is a good question. Do you think, I mean, I know, I don't know if you've, if you've, how much work you've done on this, but do you think it is through the Coke sort of, machinery, not not literally them, but that sort of wing of this sort of libertarian conservatism, that that's how that this got into Trump's ear? You know, I haven't done any research on this. My suspicion is yes, and that the joy is part of that group. And it's a well-funded group. 
they uh, issue uh, thoughtful position papers. They are programmatically hostile to the idea that the government can provide a public service better than a for-profit corporation. Yeah. Uh, DeVos in the education department has the same position. Now, yeah. that is not getting much attention in the public discussion, but if you go back a couple of months or even a couple of years, that issue has been uh, consistently uh, agitated by a very small number of very well-funded kind of radical libertarians. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so I interrupted this sort of march through history. We, we, we were at Jackson. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I, you ask a historian, I can... I no, can no, it's totally interesting. So let's pick it up there. The, the idea that the post office was corrupt was a made-up story by Jackson campaign editors. We don't yeah. even know what the claims were, but it was made up. Uh, yeah. It's corrupt. We need to throw the rascals out. Yeah. A lot of postmasters lost their jobs, primarily in the North and East. Contracts were shifted to favor uh, Jacksonian insiders. Uh, the postmaster general he brought in was very weak, um, and corruption actually increased under Jackson for a couple of years. But the, the larger issue here, and, and it had to be cleaned up, and there was a major congressional investigation. All right. But the larger issue here is the new precedent of what was called rotation in office, or more derisively, the spoils system. Yeah. Every four years, massive turnover of postmasters. Now, there was always a cadre of, of, of officers who were kind of the, the memory of the institution, the most capable administrators, the men who kept the, the mail moving. And they Deep were day. rarely dismissed. So there's a difference between operations, impartial, yeah. commercial, and uh, kind of patronage. And it's, yeah. it's, a, it's absolutely essential to the funding of the political parties, postal patronage. seems bizarre to say that today, but it was in the period from the 1820s, really right through the end of the century. Okay. So there was that. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, this is the deep state argument where, you know, it's where, where you have this sort of secretary level changes, but then there are these kind of people who make these, these departments run and go and sort of keep them moving. At what point did, did the postal service become more politically independent or at least something that wasn't on the radar of presidents? A couple of stages. The first big change occurred after the civil war with the ramping up of onboard mail sorting on railroad cars. That's quite sophisticated, complicated business, sorting the mail and moving railroad cars. So the, the vision was you could get a letter from New York to Chicago as fast as a passenger could travel. And the men who worked in the railway mail service developed an esprit de corps. They were rarely dismissed. And that was become a precedent for Pendleton Act in 1883, following the assassination of Garfield, when an increasing number of public officers were, in effect, transformed into civil servants. Uh -huh. Did not include small town postmasters. That came very late. But the, the railway mail service was the, the core. In fact, um, it's just an interesting fact. The CEO of AT&T, when it was Bell System, 
one of the most famous business leaders in our history, Theodore Vail, he grew, came up through the ranks in the railway mail service in the 1870s, mm. 80s. A number of uh, telephone executives did. Now, 20th century, it's still politicized, although it's bigger and bigger. Uh, and one obvious way it's politicized is that it was said at the political campaign, the convention season rolled around, you always knew who the postmaster general was going to be because the postmaster general was going to be the chair of the party. Uh, Jim Farley, who was FDR's party chair, he was supposed to have known 30,000 names. Now, that's the kind of skill that you have as a political insider became postmaster general. And, and that was uh, that became a thing where the the postmaster general became the chair of the party? Oh, yes. They were, um, I mean, you could just name them one after another. Wow. Uh, and it continued right until the 1960s. Interesting. Okay. Larry O'Brien. And he was the last. In 1970, wildcat strike in New York, which was very unsettling for the union leaders and for the Nixon administration, uh, kind of jump-started an initiative that had begun several years earlier with, with similar problems, this time in the Chicago post office, jump-started an initiative to run the post office on a non-partisan basis. And to signal that change, the postmaster general was taken out of the president's cabinet. So the postmaster mm -hmm. general had been in the cabinet from 1828 until 1970. After 1970, Postmaster General is no longer in the cabinet. He's appointed by the Board of Governors and the organization as a mandate to be divorced from partisan politics. Mm -hmm. And that continued until? Well, it's continued to the present day. Well, until, until three months ago. Yes. I mean, the, we. I don't have to be the one to make this point. Others have for me. The current president makes statements on any number of topics that are very different and strange from a historian's point of view. <laughs> yeah. The president deliberately politicized the post office by first saying it's a joke, it's very offensive to the half million men and women who work for the organization, deliver almost half of all the world's mail. Uh, and then to contend that, you know, kind of saying the quiet part out loud, that if Postal ballots are widely distributed. Republicans will lose, independent yeah. of the possibility of there being any, um, you know, manipulation, uh, inappropriate um, manipulation of, of the ballot. So that is very strange. Uh, I, I've been rocking my brains to find previous postmaster, excuse me, to find previous presidents who've made claims of this kind about the post office. Richard Nixon was president during a wildcat strike in 1970. And Richard Nixon had a temper and, you know, Richard Nixon was well known to make caustic statements at times, but he is glowing in his tribute to the post office in the middle of the wildcat strike. Yeah. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, wanted to limit the size of government very admiring toward the post office. This is the the norm. Anodyne statement after anodyne statement going right back to the beginning. The exception is Andrew Jackson. Let me ask you to put on your media critic hat now. Because um, you have one. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, the, 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 
we've gone from reporters not paying any attention to the postal service to now, you know, people taking pictures on their cell phones of post office boxes being loaded into trailers of people, people tracking how long the mail is taking and saying, look, this proof that, I mean, this usually takes a week and now it's taking four weeks. And this is proof that there's some, some, somebody fiddling with this. Um, how do you read those kinds? I mean, there seems to be, frankly, a little bit of a hysteria right now around this. Um, is that your reading of it too? Or do you think that the press is being, you know, I mean, and it's, it's hard to generalize, but um, you've seen these pictures, right? That I'm talking about of these, of these trailers. Yeah. Uh, I think the press is exaggerating. Uh, the post office has been downsizing for some time. The sorting equipment in big cities, sorting centers, underutilized, first-class mail is decreasing. It's my understanding that the orders concerning the blue mailboxes and the sorting equipment uh, predated the appointment of Louis de Joyce. It's one of the biggest organizations in the world. You don't turn it yeah. on a dime. These yeah. matter of months, maybe years. Uh, the postal unions have a very good PR operation yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they have been very vocal as you would expect them to be in protecting overtime. The joy cut overtime and that was the catalyst for concern. But yeah. the, the other media issue that is really inescapable is the, the president's comments and the, until quite recently, the silence of the Postmaster General. And I've thought about this from DeJoy's point of view. He, he's not a political uh, hack. He, he's not an, in the sense of being having no connection with postal administration. He's worked in logistics, or at least in related areas. He's worked in logistics. He built up a business. He's from Brooklyn. He's a self-made man. Presumably, he's concerned about his reputation as a, you know, kind of a latter-day Ross Perot, somebody who gets things done. And he's been put in this situation where his ostensible boss has been ridiculing the organization he's in charge of and making these irresponsible claims about mail-in voting. And, and for a couple of days, he was silent. And I was got increasingly troubled, agitated, and, you know, basically give him advice. You know, historians are watching. Uh, this isn't going to this isn't going to look good in the history books that we've had some poor administrators in American history, and you may well join those ranks. He did make a public statement yesterday that these changes will be delayed until after the election, which is very important for public perception. And he also said, which should be obvious if you followed the post office, that delivering 100 million ballots is not that big a deal. Yeah. This is the sort of thing the post office does all the time. What the big deal is, is the perception that ordinary operations are going to be stymied. And we, I don't do the future. We don't know what could happen. Uh, that there's been a shakeup among postal administrators, cause for concern, given the unusual statements that are coming from the top. Presidents don't disparage uh, one of the central pillars of our economy and a kind of a wellspring of public life 
you know, that, that has enormous reservoirs of trust. Over 90% of Americans or 89, 91% of Americans admire the post office. It's got a higher favorability rating than any other government organization, higher than the Center for Disease Control, recent poll I saw. So DeJoy is in a is it been put in a difficult position. He's going to be grilled by Congress tomorrow, quite appropriately. But I would hope that when he is grilled, he would come out and say straightforwardly that I'm a logistics guy. I'm going to make this work. We're going to have a transparent process. We're going to have uh, outsiders. They want. We're going to let the union. We're going to get together with the unions and to work with the public to assure everyone that the election, to the extent that the post office is responsible for its conduct, is conducted fairly, transparently, and in keeping with the mandate of the post office, which is to link the government and the governed. What could be more central to the mandate of this remarkable organization than play a critical role in assuring a peaceful transfer of power? That's what I would like to hear Louis DeJoy say. So finally, what do you, what advice do you have to reporters, especially reporters who don't know anything about any of this? Maybe they're covering the campaign. Maybe they're general assignment people just brought into this um, to avoid some of the hysteria that we've seen. I mean, what, 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 what are a couple of things that they can do in terms of a, taking a deep breath and thinking through this? Yeah. The, the post office is not always the best communicator. They should, journalists should realize that, that corporations are going to have spokesmen, they're going to have trained uh, PR staffs. The post office has historically not been particularly gifted at telling its own story. So they should be aware that they're dealing with an organization that isn't used to facing outward, which is a strange thing to say because the organization touches virtually every American. Second, it's very easy to do a woman in the street interview with someone whose letter didn't get through, whose parcel didn't get through. The Inspector yeah. General Office of the Post Office, which is the R&D branch, which has uh, got a fine uh, reputation for doing kind of minute analyses of postal effectiveness has put out studies on percentage of items that don't get through. Now, a journalist is going to say, well, it's all different today, but you'd really have to ask why. Uh, it's going to be, you're going to be able to interview postal union reps. There's the uh, Postal Alliance for the 21st Century. Steve Hutkins at NYU has a fine uh, online site. There are resources but the size of the institution, its um, embeddedness in so many of our commercial um, processes, envelope makers are among the most savvy watchers of the post because they have a vested interest in it. Just about everybody who's defending or attacking the post has an interest. Right. And the journalist should be aware of that, as they would be for any other story. But the overriding issue is, I think, that it's hard for the Post to tell its own story. And the bottom line always should be for journalists, 
to ask Congress because Congress since 1792 held the purse strings and has been the organization that granted itself the authority. So to, if you can grill congressmen, if you can ask particular representatives what is going on in their district, then at least you are, as a journalist, acting as a kind of a responsible intermediary for the center of power. It's not likely to be the postmaster general, and it's the union reps are likely to have their own uh, version of events. Richard, John, thank you so much. It's so interesting. Happy to be on. I, uh, I hope we have an election that left, right, and center regards as a legitimate one. The Postal Service is likely to play a key role in that. It's up to it. The half million men and women who work for the post office are dedicated civil servants. They want to get the job done. They want to keep our remarkable experiment in self-government uh, going. And they're part of an organization that goes right back to the founding of this country and in some ways has been and remains central to the possibilities of free government. So with that, you can continue to watch CGR's coverage of the election and the debate over the Postal Service at CGR.org. Subscribe to our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next week.